God is good, isn't he? God is good in, in every aspect of life, isn't he? Like, in everything. Think of something. God's good there. Um, and we especially see God's goodness in lives changed, don't we? I mean, that's where we get emotional. That's where we really see the goodness of God, taking a life which is lost and, uh, and changing it. Um, as we get into Obadiah today, uh, I wonder if there's any lives that need change this morning. Anyone who uh, is lost that needs to be found. Anyone who's running that needs to stop. Turn with me to the book of Obadiah. Um, if you need a Bible, if you could just raise your hand and Dustin will give you a Bible from the back. Um, and Sprouts, I'm sorry, Sprouts can be dismissed as well. The little sprouts. Going with Obadiah is in the Old Testament. Um, it's one of the prophets. If somebody has a black Bible, when you find it, if you could shout out the page number, that would be awesome. It's page seven seventy two in mine. So if you happen to have this. ESV, okay. 656 in the Black Bibles. Obadiah, chapter 1. There's actually only one chapter in Obadiah, so we can just simply say Obadiah verses 1 through 15. Um, and it, when you're there, we are going to read it. If you're there, say amen. All right. Obadiah, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you, you have been destroyed. Would they not steal not only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On that day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. 
Let's pray and ask God for understanding. Lord, we do uh, ask you to illuminate our minds as we go into this passage. We recognize that today we are reading uh, words that um, were authored by your Holy Spirit. And we, we want to recognize them this morning right now as your word to us today. God, I, I ask that you give us understanding, give us wisdom, give us insight. Wherever there is, is uh, pride in us that wants to uh, hold ourselves up, hold up our flesh, hold up our own wisdom in front of yours, I ask that you strip us of that, tear us down this morning. May these words become alive within our hearts. May we hear your voice to us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Um, So, it's not popular to talk about God's enemies. Not like the the most, you know, if if you could list what are the most popular sermon topics. Uh, The enemies of God probably would be on the bottom. It's not something that a politician gets in front of a crowd and uh, talks about his faith, and in talking about his faith, talks about the enemies of God. He wouldn't be elected, right? Uh, It's not something that a Christian musician uh, sits down and typically writes a uh, song about, and that song would typically not make it to to top the charts uh, under the Christian radio station. The enemies of God, right? We sing, I'm a friend of God, but what about there are enemies of God? Not, it's just not a really popular subject, all right? So I recognize this morning as we get into this book of Obadiah and as we look directly in the face of God's enemies and God's message to his enemies, I realize that we are um, treading on thin ice. As soon as we start talking about the enemies of God, we start to sound like somebody we don't want to be. You might sound like you're part of the jihad or who would say that Americans are the enemies of God. Or maybe ultra-right churches who would say that Democrats are God's enemies. Or maybe ultra-liberal churches who have their own agenda who would say that Republicans are God's enemies, right? Let me ask you this. Who are God's enemies? I wonder how you would answer that. (laughs) Who are God's enemies? Are you an enemy? Are you an enemy of God? And when we understand the definition of enemy, a person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something, are you an enemy of God this morning? And if you were, would you know it? Um. Obadiah is this short 21-verse book in the middle of, or toward the end of the Old Testament, rather. It's known as uh, one of the prophecies. The Old Testament is divided up into different genres, and one of those genres is prophecy. And there are major prophets, and there are minor prophets. Now, Obadiah is a minor prophet, and it doesn't mean that he's somehow lesser than the majors, uh, but rather major prophets are, they deal with broad issues, they deal with multiple nations, and minor prophets focus in on one people, one nation, all right? So Obadiah is a minor prophet, and he's focusing in on this group, this nation known as, as, as Edom. It was written about 500 years, give or take a few hundred years, we don't know the exact date, um, before Jesus Christ was born into this world, the role of the prophets was, was to call out the past and the present sins of either God's people or the nations around them. And the, the prophets also often came with a warning of future destruction, problems that are coming your way because of the sin that you are continuing in. And also it came with this, uh, this, this picture of a future hope, a restoration 
a redemption that's about to take place. And that, by the way, is why we, on this side of the cross, love the prophets. But we, because we can go here, we can go to the prophets, and we can find that, that all of the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. So we just came out of this series in Mark, which is definitely all about Jesus, the gospel of Mark. And what we're going to realize, what we're begin, beginning to realize is that even Ob- Obadiah is about Jesus. Um, and at, at the garden, we want to... Uh, I want to be able to give you guys a glimpse into the, the depth and the beauty and the width and the wisdom of all the scriptures have to say. And so we are diving back, tracking back about 500 years before Jesus uh, into this small little book, this minor prophet of Obadiah. We're going to be here this week and then next week as well. So let's get into it. This week we're going to focus on the enemies of God. Um, and then next week we'll focus on the friends of God. Verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God. Now, let's just stop right there. Those five words, thus says the Lord God. If, if you are a friend of God, those are great words to hear. If you're sitting here today and you are God's friend, and you're hearing the words, thus says the Lord God, your ears perk up, and you want to hear what's about to be said. That's exciting to you, those of you who are friends of God. There's nothing better, no other word that we can hear. The words of your friends, the words of your mom, the words of your spouse. This supersedes them all. All right, God speaks, thus says the Lord God. And it gets our attention. Now, those who are enemies of God, these are five words that would be devastating to hear. Those who are enemies of God would not want to hear what the Lord God has to say. Thus says the Lord God is devastating to his enemies. Let's continue. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Now, Obadiah begins this, this, this message addressed specifically to Edom, who is an enemy of God. And what we're about to see is that the enemies of God, Edom, is about to be slain. God is about to pull out a sword and slay his enemies Edom. It's addressed from Obadiah. The, the, there are 11 other Obadiahs in the Old Testament. As far as theologians can tell, none of them wrote this prophecy. We're not exactly sure who wrote this prophecy, who this Obadiah is. And even the word Obadiah literally is translated or means servant of Yahweh. And so this is coming from this guy who possibly is even using like a pen name. I'm, like, I'm not even going to put my name out there. I am the servant of Yahweh. This is a message from the Lord. Like there is no personality here. This isn't some guy's ideas. There's no personal commentary here. There's no human motives in this. This is just a straight up message addressed from God through this tool, whoever this was, to the enemies of God, Edom. Now, in order to fully understand the struggle that's taking place here, this issue between Edom and Judah, or Israel, we have to go back another some hundreds of years, back to a mother's womb who is carrying twins. Genesis chapter 25 Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. 
the children struggled together within her. Let's stop right there. Twins, all right, in her womb, and they are struggling together. That's problematic, all right? My wife recently, you know, what, uh, five months ago was pregnant, and then another nine months before that. And every time this little guy moved, she felt it. So imagine if there were two in there, and they were having, having a wrestling match, like they didn't like each other, an elbow to the throat, all right? They're struggling within her womb, these two twins. Now, she gives birth. Well, actually, before she gives birth, birth, her response in verse 22, she says, why is this happening to me? Which you mothers who have been pregnant, if you can imagine what she was going through, you might also ask, why is this happening? What, seriously? So she went to inquire of the Lord to find out what's going on inside of her womb. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Oh, great. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older, who, who is Esau, shall serve the younger, who is Jacob. When her days uh, to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, which literally is the word Edom, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they named him Esau. Verse 26, after his brother came out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel so that his name was called Jacob. They came out fighting, all right? Jacob and Esau. As they grew older, we, we know of another struggle that they had. It was over a birthright. Do you remember this story? Their father was dying, was going to give a birthright. So quick kind of synopsis. Who, who is going to carry on the lineage and the promise that's coming through the father? Who is going to carry it on? The, the Messiah is going to come through. God's going to bless the entire world through the father's seed. Which one of these two sons is going to carry on that promise? That's what the birthright was all about. And as we know, Esau sold for his flesh. He wanted to gratify his flesh. He sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob receives the birthright. Esau's response is, as soon as our father dies, I am going to kill you. Jacob runs. Thus begins this age-old struggle between these two nations. Esau then finally settles in what what was known as the hill country. And there in the hill country, a nation is born. Jacob, who, who God loves, by the way, God's response with these two brothers was, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? And God sh- God, God's seed is now being passed through Jacob. His name was changed to what? Israel, and what comes through Jacob, a nation. So we have now Edom, which came through Esau, and, Jacob, uh, and, and Israel, which came through Jacob. You guys tracking with me here? A little history lesson. Now the most recent struggle in Obadiah here, what's, what's happening around this time, centers not around birthrights, but around trade routes. There was what was known as the King, King's Highway. It was a major trade route through much of the known world, which passed through Israel. Um, whoever controls the trade route, imagine, think, put yourself back a couple thousand years, whoever controls this trade route controls the goods, right? If you control the trade route, that's a good, it, it's, think of it as like, Massive tolls that you can charge. The enemies of Israel attacked Israel, Judah, to try to take over some of this trade route. And Edom, who should have been an ally to Israel, what did they do? Guess. Just guess. I mean, think about the struggle that we have here. Instead of being an ally and helping Israel they instead turn and help the enemies attack to gain a portion of the trade route. 
So with that being sort of our big backdrop here for Obadiah, we enter into this struggle. Obadiah writing to the people of Edom. And we learn from this, we're going to learn from this, an important message of who, in fact, God's enemies are. As, um, as obscure as this seems at this point, what we have to recognize is that all Scripture is given to us for our benefit. And so this is as relevant for us in some ways as it was for, the, for Edom and Israel thousands of years ago. Verse 3, who are God's enemies? First, God's enemies are the proud. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart, writing to Edom, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Now, let's just stop right there for a moment. Pride is deceptive. The pride of your heart, Edom, the reason God is about to slay you, it has deceived you. Your heart has been deceived by this thing. If you are a person today in this room who struggles with pride, you probably don't know it. You're deceived. You probably think you're a pretty humble person. There is no sin that is, that is so dark, that is so entrenched into who we are, that is, that is hidden deep within our hearts. It's a sin that is nearly impossible to discipline as a church. How do you discipline someone with pride? Because they don't even see it themselves. It's extremely destructive. And it is deeply woven into the fabric of who we are as fallen human beings. When we default to our natural sense and our, our natural way of doing things, what we find is pride. It is who we are. It is ingrained into us. And the crazy thing is this. You don't have to have anything to be proud. It's not something that just the rich struggle with. The proud might begin with stuff, the proud might begin with material wealth, but take that away and the proud will find something else to be proud of. And, and they may find pride in their natural abilities, in their talents. And somehow, if you could rob them of their natural abilities, if you could rob them of their talents, the, pri- the proud would find their pride in the fact that they're alive and what they should be, and what, who they should be. If everybody knew who I really was. And take them of their life. Take their life from them, and the proud will be proudful of their state in hell. Existing without God. It is ugly, it is deceptive, and it will lead you to eternal separation from God. And you don't have to have anything to be proud. It's crazy. If you, if you lose whatever you're proud about, you'll find something else to take its place. And this is exactly what's happening with Edom. Edom historically is insignificant. They were poor. They didn't have much. They were relatively small. They were relatively unknown. Yet they found a whole bunch of things to be proud about. Because as human beings, it is entrenched into who we are. And you have to understand that pride makes you an enemy with God. I want, I want to show you, I want to point out a couple things in these verses here where we just see uh, the, the pride of Edom absolutely glowing. First, we see it in their security. We see it in the place that they lived. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart, he says, has deceived you. 
You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says, declares the Lord. Number one, their pride is seen in their security. It's, it's this place that they find themselves, like literally their location. They don't have much, but wow, look at our location. And they're puffed up because of the location in which they live. And I want to explain this to you and you'll get a glimpse into why this is. I want to show you a picture up here. This is the land that Edom once lived in. And what we see, what we read is, he, he says, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say, who's going to bring me down? You've got to understand something. With this kind of terrain that they live in, all right, they're nestled in the rocks. They live up on top of the rocks. This is the hill country here. With this kind of terrain, this becomes like natural defense structure. In the ancient world, this was actually a pretty valuable place to live. Some of these peaks rose as high as 5,700 feet. And so here they are, and, and their mindset is this. Who can take us down from here? Who can? I mean, I would imagine that other armies have at times tried to attack them, and because of their natural defense structure, they've gotten nowhere. So here they are. Who can defeat us? Look where we live. Look how great we are because of our locale, our natural defenses. Who can take us down from this place? In uh, April of 1912, there was a ship called the Titanic. Anybody ever heard of it? Uh, over 2,000 people boarded this ship. It's set to sea. And it's been attributed to one of the uh, deckmates. This is more legend than history. All right, little side note. It's been attributed to one of the deckmates. Um, the words, not even God can sink this ship. Not even God can sink this ship. The 2,000 plus people who were boarding the ship that day, whether they, whether anybody verbally said those words or not, I doubt anybody had any clue that only one out of three would survive the journey that they're about to, about to take. Two out of three would never see land again. Complete confidence in this vessel. Plans for the future. And could there have been, in someone's mind, not, only, not even God can sink this ship. And whether, whether or not those words were ever actually stated, it, that phrase right there sums up the life of the proud. Not even God can sink this ship. Not even God. Who can pull us down from our place? Who can pull us down from our state? Not even God can sink this ship. The problem of... of uh, the proud remo removes you from the sovereignty and the control of God. It places you in the same boat as Edom. And how do we know this? How do we know that, that the proud, those who are, have, have opposed God, How do we know that they, that they don't believe that even God can sink them? Because nobody would actually say that. At least not many people would. I mean, I doubt any of you here who are proud would ever actually say, even God can't kill me. Even God can't destroy me. Even God. I mean, I have this, I, I, I have this fortress that I've built around me. My 401k, my, my guns, my natural talents and abilities, you name it. You've built the fortress around you. And though you would never say it, we know that, you're, that, we know that you believe that not even God can tear you down. 
Because you could care less about his commands. You could care less about the call to holiness. And you're more concerned about your own commandments that you've given yourself about who you are and who you're going to be, who you're trying to be. Not even God can bring me down. Who is going to tear us down? And when we find ourselves in that state, thinking like that, even subtly, going through life as if, as if God can't destroy us, we have everything in common with our father Adam, who looked at the fruit and saw that it was good, pleasing to the eye, and believed that it would make him like God. And by the way, we have everything in common with Satan. If, if any of you know anything about the fall of Satan, the language that we're, we're reading here in Obadiah is almost parallel to the fall of Satan, the root of sin itself. It comes from Isaiah chapter 14. I'll just read it to you, verses 13 and 14. These words are attributed to Lucifer, to Satan. I will ascend to the heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. On the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, will make myself like the most high. From this place of pride, when we, when we, when we forget God and we truly believe that we are ruling and controlling our own sphere of things and we have our fortresses that we've built around us, we have everything in common with, with Edom, with their father Esau, who was controlled by his flesh, with his father Adam, who was controlled by his desire to dethrone God, and with his father Satan. At the very core of the fall, understand this, the very center of our sin, of sin itself, is pride. That's where it all began. And this belief, not even God can sink this ship. Who can take us down from here? And because of his pride, because of Satan's pride, he was kicked out of heaven. His throne was smashed, thrown to the earth, knocked off the sacred mountain, cast off the clouds, and he earned the wrath of the Most High. Verse 4, I'll read it again. Though you soar aloft like the eagles, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And then Obadiah just like rattles off all of these different places where pride is showing up in the lives of the Edomites, where pride is controlling them, and where pride is really, if you think of it like a chair, it's the four-legged foundation of the chair that they're sitting, off and, sitting on, and he begins to go one by one, rattles it off, and talks about the destruction that's about to come on them for their pride. Uh, so we see pride in their security, Secondly, we see pride now in their treasures. Look at verse 5. He says, If thieves came to you, if plunders came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not only steal enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. They had pride in the treasures, whatever they had. They took pride in it. This is us. This is me. And no one can take these things from us. I think of Job. You know the story of Job? This dude had everything. He had a beautiful family, a lot of kids. He had a great business, great health. And within a matter of hours, what happened to Job? Lost it all. His children were dead. His business crumbled. His health deteriorated. And what was Job's immediate response? Naked I came from the womb. Naked I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, the pride could not have that kind of response. Do you understand that? The proud, the proud, those who are putting 
their, their value, they're finding their ultimate treasure in the things underneath the sun, in the things of this world, in the things of their flesh. If that were all stripped away, their flesh were take, was taken from them, their, their business, their family, their possessions, everything was robbed from them. The proud could not say, naked I came, naked I'll return, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. The proud can't say that. Edom could not say that. Because their treasures was one of these foundations that they were building their lives on. Their security, the place that they live, the treasures, the things that they hid there in the rocks. And they're about to lose it all. They're about to crumble. Also, Edom's, Edom was proud in who they knew. They were proud in their friendships, in their allies. Look at verse 7. He says, All of your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Every aspect, every aspect of their foundation. Let me do this. If we could think of Edom as a chair. And they had these four legs which are holding them up, all right? Every one of these legs is being chopped off. Their security, the place that they live, they're about to lose it. They're about to be pulled down from there. Their stuff, their treasures, their possessions that they're hiding in the rocks, they're about to be pillaged. They're about to lose it. They're about to be crushed. Their friends, the people that they know, the, their allies, the people whose, whose names they occasionally drop when they need to. They're about to lose them. They're about to, they're about to be completely destroyed. And what happens when you take three legs off of a four-legged chair? You only have one more leg to go, right? It crumbles. And there's a fourth leg that they, that they remove. Which, by the way, let me, bef before I go to the fourth leg, when I was in college, I'm not going to get into the story. I was debating whether or not I should even share this. But when I was in college, I, I, I pulled this terrible prank, all right, on... Um, uh, I don't know if I, maybe I should dismiss my children. <laughs> On my wife, all right, I said it. She was my girlfriend at the time, and um, I thought it was funny, and I basically pulled a prank on her and then the entire student body. And um, I thought it was funny. Let me just reiterate that. And I'll tell you, if you want to hear the story, I'll tell it to you sometime. I think it's funny. Jess doesn't, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't think it's funny. <laughs> it involved the student body president, or the, uh, um, anyway, it was crazy. Um, it, it ended with my girlfriend at the time in front of a whole bunch of people on the basketball court calling me a jerk um, and walking away. And then all of my friends, poof, scattering. Like, literally, they just walked away. They didn't even say anything to me. When it all came out, and they found out that I was at the center of this awesome prank, they all left me. And I was literally, like, knocking on my wife's dorm room window. Please, forgive me. That was, I went too far. I, then I was walking toward the library, and I saw my friends just kind of hanging out, chatting, and, like, I took a lot of pride in my friends, and as I walked and got closer to them, they literally, it was like off of a teenage drama movie or something like that. They just scatter in separate directions. I mean, like, who does that, first of all? Seriously? They went in like seven directions, like this. Like, that was pre-planned. I know you guys are doing this to me. All right? When you lose, when you, when you find your pride in the people around you, and guys, this is kind of a natural thing for us to do, to, to really rely 
on the people around us and you lose them because of something stupid that you do, it hurts, right? You're torn up. You're humiliated. Now, this is the third leg of Edom's chair. And it's, it's actually kind of a lot worse for them. Their friends are not just scattering. Their friends are turning against them and killing them, all right? They're pillaging them. Their allies are no longer their allies. So they have their pride in their security. They find their pride in their stuff. They find their pride in their allies and their friends and the people that they knew. And they're losing it all. And then this fourth one, they find their pride in their wisdom, in their understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. They're wise men, they're, they're thinkers, everything that they know, their understanding, they're going to lose it all. And a chair with all four legs cut off crumbles, they have nothing else to stand on, to sit on, and it falls to the ground. And they are pulled from their perched nest all the way down. Understand this. I want to make this very clear. There are two types of people in the Scriptures. There are two types of people. There are those who put their confidence in the Lord, and there are those who put their confidence in the flesh. There are those who trust in God and find God as their greatest treasure and there are those who find the flesh, themselves, the things under the sun, material things, their friends, their allies, their thinking, their brains, their wisdom, their education, where they came from. They find those things as uh, their greatest treasure. They're the proud. And the proud stand as in, in opposition to God. The proud become enemies with God. You think, you think highly of the place that you, that you live or the place that you came from. I was talking to some guys this last week and they are very proud of the fact that they came from the hood because of every, everything that they've experienced. But who placed them in the hood? Who allowed them to experience what they've experienced and to learn what they've learned? Or for those of you who are proud that you came from the suburbs, who placed you in the suburbs? Who gave you the opportunity that you have? You think you're privileged. For those who put their flesh, or who, who, who put their confidence in, um, in, in, their, in their treasures, and the things that they have under the sun. Who gave you those things? And then they might say, which people say to me all the time when I have these kind of conversations, well, I work a job. Like God didn't give me anything. I work hard. I get up every morning and I go work a job. All right, but who gave you the work ethic? Who gave you your abilities to work? Who gave you your talents to get the job that you have? Who gave you these things? Where do they stem from? Where do they come? Is it you? Is it really you? For those who think highly of their friends, of their allies, of the people that they know, again, you can ask, who, gave, who puts you in those relationships? Who, who connected you in these relationships with these people? For those who think highly of their brains, of their wisdom, of the things that they know. Who gave you that wisdom? Who gave you the brain that's operating up there? Who allowed you to go to the school that you went to? To read the book that you read? You see, the problem with pride, and I, I, want, I want you to understand why this is at the center, at the core of sin itself. The problem with pride is that it removes God of his sovereignty. 
It removes God of His place of authority, His place of control in our lives. It removes God of being God in our lives. And it places ourselves there. And then we find confidence in ourselves or the things that are around us. So how do you know if you are an enemy of God? How do you know? I want to give you four things as sort of a, a self-evaluation tool. Because if, if there is an enemy of God in the building today, I don't want you to walk out of here his enemy. Number one, you know you're an enemy of God if you do not need him for security. If you are good to go day to day without recognizing that you need God for your security. And I'm not saying that this means that you need to live an insecure life. What I'm saying is, is whatever you have, whatever fortresses you have, whether those, those, that is a 401k or whether that is a gun or whether that is a house, or do you recognize that God could destroy those things at any moment? Do you recognize that you need God every day to breathe the next breath that to, 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 for your heart to beat the next beat? So number one, you're an enemy of God if you do not need Him for your security. Number two, if you do not treasure Him above all else. Think of everything that you have. Your house, your apartment, your, your family, your friends, your parents, uh, your job, your, the things that you do. Think of everything. Is there anything that you treasure more than God? You are an enemy of God if you treasure something more than you treasure Him. Number three, if you do not need Him as a friend. Now, are you so content with the people that are around you, your allies, your friends, the people that you know? Are you so content that you really don't need God as a friend? Meaning, when you, when you think of eternity, life after death, um, does it most excite you that you will be with your friends and family? Or does it most excite you that you will be with God? So for instance, for all of eternity, if you could have your friends and your family, those who you love, with you, and God was not there, would you be happy? Or do you need God as your friend? Like you couldn't go one more day without God as your friend. Without Him smiling upon you. And number four, you know that you're an enemy of God if you do not rely on Him for truth. If you diminish the Scriptures, if you call the Word of God that He's given us irrelevant, and you may not, again, you may not verbally say that, but you show that with your actions. You make your own truth. You do not need God for truth. You are an enemy of God. Now, I want to do this quickly, and we're going to wrap up here. I want you to see the devastating effects of Edom, Edom's pride and, and what, what happened uh, with Edom and Israel. Look at verse 10 in Obadiah. I need a drink here. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth 
in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitive. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations as you have done. It shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. Now, let me try to break this down for you so you can get a picture, a real life picture of what's happening here. If you were to babysit my daughters, all right, five and seven years old, you were to babysit for us, <clears throat> which you can do, by the way. If you want to babysit right now, just raise, <laughs> raise talk to me afterward, and we will uh, get that worked out. Um, unless you're like what I'm about to describe, all right? If you were to babysit for my daughters, and a stranger, let's just say, busts down the door, and you're, you're watching Netflix, watching a movie, they come in and they take my girls, and walk out of the house with them, all right? And they're screaming, by the way, let's, let's just say. hope I don't traumatize Jaden. This is all just figurative, Jaden. <laughs> She's not even listening, all right. Um, they walk out, and you're standing aloof watching this happen, all right? And then it gets worse. You actually turn from Netflix, you turn from the movie you're watching, to laugh and gloat over the miserable state of my children. Ha, ha, ha. Too bad for them. And then it gets worse. Your pride is actually puffed up in this moment because it's not happening to you. Look what's happening to them. And that, I'm good. I'm safe. And you actually delight in the fact that some stranger just bust down the door, grabbed my kids, and, and walked out, all right? And then it gets worse. You go up to their bedroom and find their piggy bank, break it open, and you take the couple pennies and three quarters that are in the piggy bank and stick them in your pocket, open up the top drawer and grab their little plastic bracelets and stick them in your other pocket. You loot their stuff, okay? <laughs> and then it gets worse. You realize that my baby boy is up there and you say, oh no, and you take him and you run after the people that just walked in and you say, oh, you forgot one. All right? Now, I love you. I want you to know that. I love you. I love humans, period. But I don't, I, I don't love you in the same way that I love my children. So if you were to do that to my children, you're no friend of mine. Do you understand that? I want you to understand, this is, the, this is the story of the Bible here. We see this in every prophetic book. God loves people, period. But not like he loves his children. Not in the same way he loves his children. And you stand aloof to, the, to, the, to his children who bear his image, the very image of God. You stand aloof while they are pillaged, well, they are taken. And then you, you turn over the survivors. Edom was an enemy of God as they stood against God's child. As they stood against, let's broaden it, his image. Are you standing against the image of God this morning? Who are you gloating over? Who, I mean, who, when they fail, it makes you happy inside, deep down in your heart? I mean, not that you did anything right, but they did something wrong, and it somehow lifts you up and you gloat over their failure. Who do you hope to fail, to see fail? How, how do you treat the church of God? And I, I mean by that, the literal flesh and blood. Everybody look around really quick. Just look around. Left to right, back, forward. Look at me. Back, okay, all over. <laughs> Dustin, Kenny, everybody, sound guys. All right. How do you treat the church of God? The literal flesh and blood, children 
of God? Do you love them? Do you love them like the Father wants you to love his children? Do you pray for them as the Father wants you to pray for his children? Or do you gossip? Do you talk? You know why gossip? You know, churches talk about gossip a lot. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that the, the gossip conversation tends to come up. Do you know why gossip is prevalent in churches? It's because it's, part of, it's, it's, it's prevalent in the human condition. I mean, we as human beings enjoy Enjoy the, the, the failing of others. Why do we love the tabloids? Why do we love to, to, to hear stories of failure? Why do we, when there is gossip, we want to know what's going on. We want to know who's, who's fallen. We want to know who's down. Why? It's part of our human condition. It's pride. We gloat. It lifts us up. And we gloat over those who are down. How do you treat the church of God? How do you treat his children? Now, this is not the last place that we see in history a problem between Edom and Israel. Some, a couple hundred years later, 500 some years later, there is another descendant of the Edomites whose name is Herod the Great who comes onto the scene an Edomite. And he gets word that there has, a king has been born of a virgin. And this king is going to be the king. It's going to supplant his kingship. And what does this Edomite try to do? Stamp him out. When you receive word that there is another king there is another king who wants to be king over your life, who wants to rule and reign your heart, who wants to direct your paths, who wants to give you a whole new set of commandments than the ones you've been living by. When you receive that word, do you readily receive it? Or do you try as well to stamp him out? You see, at the core of pride, at the core of sin, where we find ourselves in, in the middle of all of this is standing opposed to our king, to the king, to the only begotten child of God, the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Are you an enemy of God this morning? And what do you do about it? <clears throat> Like I said, pride, if, if you're proud, um, you probably won't know it. Same goes with it. If you're an enemy, you probably won't know it unless God opens your eyes to that. And if God has exposed this morning some places of pride in your life, some dark, devastating areas of destructive sin in your life, of flesh, some places where you just might be opposing the image of God as seen primarily in Jesus Christ. I want to just give you like a quick handle, something to grab onto. Three things. Number one, know that God can destroy you at any time. Know that God can destroy you at any time. Just know that. Like it is grace right now that you are still alive. It is grace right now that you will take another breath. It is grace that your heart will continue to beat for the next minute. And do you realize that in any moment, God could just take that life from you? He could destroy you at any time. We are literally just like hanging on by threads in the palm of his hand and he's, he's hang, he's, we're, we're dangling there. And he could let you go. So, just know that, all right? Be aware of that. Secondly, 
treasure Christ above everything else. When you think of everything, I mean, take an evaluation of your life this afternoon. Do I treasure Christ more than that? Do I treasure Christ more than this? Do I treasure Christ above everything else? And number three, know that God makes his enemies his friend. And this is huge. I mean, this is not, this is not like any other human condition. Humans don't typically seek to make their enemies their friends. But God does. And if you are an enemy of God this morning, he wants you to become his friend. The, the irony, the irony in this God, God will slay his enemies, period. All right? So you will be slain by God, period. But there are two types of ways that you might be slain. One, remain his enemy, and your fate will be the same as that of Edom. Remain his enemy, and he will cut you down. He will knock you off your nest. He will destroy you. Remain his enemy, and you will remain in his punishment for all of eternity. Or, God will slay your flesh. Let me read you a couple verses here. In Romans, in Romans it says, We are dead to sin. We are dead. To, who killed our flesh? We've been crucified with Christ. And so we're dead to our sins. We're dead to our old selves. We're dead to our pride. We're dead to our longings. We're dead to our desire to gloat over others. We are dead to sin. How can we live any longer in it? Galatians, for I am dead to the law. Colossians, you are dead. Your life is now hid in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He who bore our sins that we being dead to sin, is now made alive with Christ. My prayer for us this morning and for all of Baltimore this morning is that God will slay his enemies, that God will slay thousands of his enemies across the city and turn them into his friends, that he will cut them at their flesh. Where they are, where they are living in their in their sins, when they're, where they're living in their pride, where they're finding their sense of security and passion in the things under the sun, that God will cut that off and that God will slay thousands. That He will send us out of here with this powerful word. And that we across our neighborhood will see thousands of God's enemies slain and invited to be His friends. Their flesh completely cut off. And you guys understand the kind of transformation that we would see if God cut the flesh across our neighborhood, if the gospel was rooted in the lives of 2,000 people across our neighborhood. We would see fathers taking care and responsibility of their families. We would see husbands and, and, and wives just learning what selfless love means for each other. We would see young people stop killing each other. That's my prayer. That God, with the, with the power of the Holy Spirit, would slay thousands this morning. And may He do so through you. You see, when, 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 we, when we kneel at the foot of the cross, when, when we're brought down and we're at the foot of the cross and, we, and as we look up, the, the, the blood from Jesus' brow drips onto our own and we see his naked body which is nailed there on our behalf. 
And we hear his words go out. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm taking my enemies and I'm turning them into my friends and I'm transforming them. At the foot of the cross, there is no pride. There can be no pride with the blood of Christ poured on top of you. That's all I got. We're going to end with the cross. And may the Lord slay thousands. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you take these words from Obadiah, these words that were communicated to, uh, to, to your enemies, Edom, and that we here today in this room in Baltimore, Maryland, that we hear these words, that your spirit do a work in our hearts, that you convict us. We ask that you give us the, the opportunity to take this, the, the power of this gospel into our neighborhood, into our city, and that you slay thousands for the gospel. And that we see the, the, the blood of Christ evident in the lives of those around us. God, where we are proud, where I personally am proud, where I want people to see me, where I want my flesh to, to be seen, God, strip us down. Just lay us bare in those places and drag us to the foot of the cross and there may we be removed of all of our pride and our sin as we look at our Savior who died on our behalf and who rose again three days later conquering sin, conquering death and raising to life all of those who you slain. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen.